Well, please turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah. If you do not have a Bible, we have plenty to give out, and uh, we will make sure that everyone has a copy of this in front of them. So you just go ahead and shoot your hand up, and uh, we'd love to be able to get one to you. Don't feel bad about doing that. Uh, What I like to say is that we want everyone to have a Bible in front of them because we're going to hear some things that are so good this morning. I want to make sure you know I'm not making making it up. We are in a series in the book of Jonah, uh, and this is what we do as a church. We typically take a book of the Bible and make our way systematically through it because we believe that the Bible is the revelation of God. We believe that because we are followers of Jesus. And Jesus said that the Bible is the revelation of God. And so we come to the Bible not to impose our our thoughts upon it. We come to the Bible to let God speak to us, to let God show us who he is, to let let God tell us about who we are, and ultimately that we might do what Jesus said, and that is to see him through these pages. Because Christ said it is all one story about him. We're currently seeking to see Christ through our study in the book of Jonah. Jonah is a short book that is famously known as a a story about a guy who gets swallowed by a big fish. Um, But what we're seeing in our study so far is that this is really not a story about a guy getting swallowed by a big fish. This is a story about God's relentless love for rebellious people. In chapter 1, God tells this prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was a large city full of evil and rebellious people. But God, in his mercy, had chosen to show his love to them. And so he sends a warning to them that they might turn from their evil ways. But Jonah does not want to be a part of God's compassionate call. And so he runs from what God tells him to do. He rebels against God and gets on a boat and goes in the opposite way. But God not only has mercy for rebellious Nineveh, God has mercy for rebellious Jonah. And so God sends a storm that results in Jonah being thrown into the sea and ending up in the belly of a fish. And we see in chapter 2 that God had sent that fish to save Jonah's life. And in that place, Jonah experienced God's mercy. And he has a spiritual breakthrough where he enjoys the grace of repentance and turns from his sin, confesses his sin to God, and recommits his life to God. And when he does, he gets thrown up by this fish onto dry land, and that's where we pick up today in Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read Jonah chapter 3 in its entirety. Let us listen as we hear God's word address us. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Praise God for his word. May you be with us now through the preaching of it for the glory of his name. Amen. We see in chapter 3 here that God still wants to reach Nineveh. He's still looking down upon that city with mercy and compassion. And so he again calls Jonah to go to them. And this time, Jonah listens. This time, Jonah goes. And as he goes, the whole city turns to God. Friends, we are seeing in this chapter a miracle. A miracle both in Jonah, in that Jonah's heart is changed and he is now willing to go, and a miracle in Nineveh, in that they turn from their evil ways and turn to God. And so I believe that this passage, friends, it's meant to stir our faith. It's meant to stir our faith both in how God can work in us and then how God can work through us. I'm telling this morning's sermon, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? And the big idea of this chapter, if I could say it in one way, I would say it like this. God can work unimaginable miracles through unlikely messengers delivering an uncomfortable message. God can work unimaginable miracles through unlikely messengers delivering an uncomfortable message. And we're going to break our study of this chapter into really three points. The unlikely messenger, the uncomfortable message, and then the unimaginable miracle. And so first, the unlikely messenger. Verse 1 tells us that the word of God came again to Jonah. Jonah was not looking for it, but God chose, chose once again to speak to him and send him. Now, we have to understand the context in which now Jonah is being sent. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12 that the sign of Jonah was something that was known in the land. What was the sign of Jonah? It was the fact that he had been vomited out of the belly of a fish. It's the fact that he, he was supposed to be dead, but he actually somehow had stayed alive. Jo Jonah had tried to make a quiet escape when he was running from God. He, he didn't go down to his home port. He tried to go down to Joppa where no one knew him. Uh, he was trying to keep a low profile and get away with his rebellion. But then this whole fish thing happens. Uh, and you can't really hide being thrown up from a fish. And so word spreads and Jonah's salvation is known, which means what? It means also that his failure is known. The only reason that he was in a place of needing saving was because of his rebellion in the first place. And so everyone knew Jonah's stuff. Everyone knew he had tried to run. The sign of Jonah was clear. And so I think about that word coming to Jonah. I think what it must have been like for him to be like, okay, i got to step out, and I just can't keep a low profile. I can't just go fade off into the distance. I now, on the platform of my failure, need to go and be faithful to what God's called me to do. 
how often when we blow it, we just, we just want to kind of disappear, go someplace where we're not known, make a clean break of it. We feel shame, and so we want to hide. But that option is not available to Jonah. God says, no hiding from you, I'm going to send you. And honestly, hiding is not good for any of us. When we try to get away and lay low because we feel shame, we only further the narrative that we can't be made clean. And friends, that is a false gospel. Jonah here is not allowing the shame of his past to paralyze him from serving God in the present. He gets up and goes, even though it must have been hard, because the only thing harder than listening to God is regretting that you didn't. And so Jonah gets up and goes to Nineveh, and then notice what's happening here, friends. As Jonah is getting up and going to Nineveh, as he is now being obedient, before revival starts in Nineveh, this revival first started in the heart of Jonah. He has gone from being the rebellious prophet to now an obedient servant. Jonah had experienced a mercy he didn't deserve from came, that came from a love that he previously didn't understand, and now he's a changed man. He's not a perfect man. We're going to say that next week. He's still got a lot of stuff going on. But he is a different man. Jonah, Jonah had been changed by the mercy of God. He had known about God's mercy before, theoretically. He, he had understood the theology that God is a God of steadfast love. But now he had tasted and seen the goodness of God's loving mercy towards him. And when you've tasted the goodness of God, friends, that can't help but to change your heart. God wants to do things through us, friends. But his work usually first starts with him doing something in us. He wants to do something through us. What he does through us first needs to start with what he wants to do in us. Our hearts need to be melted by the mercy of God if we want to be used by God to share his mercy with others. When my wife and I were first praying about moving, coming in here to Philadelphia to start this church, uh, to be honest, the last thing that Angie wanted to do was to come into Philadelphia and start a church here. Uh, when I said, hey, I'm thinking this is what God's calling us to do. We pray about it. She cried. Um, because she had all the typical suburban fears. They're, you know, totally not true, but we're in the suburbs you think they are. She had all the typical suburban fears about living in a city. Uh, but she's a woman who is captured by the mercy of God. And so she prayed, God, I don't want to be led by my comfort, but I want to respond to your calling. And she prayed. And God made it clear to her, and through making it clear to her, affirmed what I felt like he had made clear to me, that God calls us to start a church here in Philadelphia, and, and we moved in. And now we love living here, and actually, even if I wasn't a pastor, we wouldn't go anywhere else. Like, we can't imagine life elsewhere. Uh, but one of the many things I've learned from my wife's example is that when you are deeply affected by the merciful love of God, then you want to live obedient to God. That's just how she lives her life. Obedience becomes not a chore, but a delight. And so, friends, if obedience is a struggle for you, the path forward to learning how to listen to God better, the path forward from turning from your sin and turning to him, is not just trying to exert more willpower, not just trying harder. It's meditating more on the merciful love of God for you in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, then like Jonah, your life has been spared from death. Like Jonah, your life has been spared from the death that you deserve. Because Jesus came. 
and he himself was thrown into the sea of God's judgment for us. He took what we deserve and died on the cross, taking God's judgment in our place so that, that we can believe that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And so like Jonah, friends, God's mercy towards us is meant to soften us and make us willing instruments in God's hands. And specifically to this passage, we need to understand that being a willing instrument in God's hand, what does that mean? Well, it means many things, but according to this passage, it means that we, like Jonah, also need to rise and go. This is not just a message for Jonah, friends. We need to understand the last words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1-8 are, go be my witnesses. Go be my witnesses. And those words echo down to us today. To be a Christian means to be someone who has been commissioned, who has been charged, who has been charged by the Almighty God to go live for the purpose that Jesus has given you to tell other peoples about him. That's not an option. That's the definition of what it means to be a Christian. The only question is whether you're being faithful to that or not. But this is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to be a witness to what has happened in your life, how you've been changed by Jesus Christ. And so, friends, we need to be people who will rise, who will rise and go. For some, that might mean going to another country that does not have access to the gospel. There are more Ninevehs out there, friends. There are more Ninevehs out there. There are more people who right now have literally never heard the name of Jesus and salvation of God that is offered through him. And so like Jonah, we need to be willing to go to the unreached peoples of the world. There's a work that we are actually in the process of getting involved in that I can't talk about right now for security reasons. We're trying to figure out how to be able to talk about it safely. Uh, so stay tuned for more. But, but friends, I want to be very clear. We as a church want to be about going and reaching those with no access to the gospel. There's many good things happening around the world, many places you can go, where we want to prioritize going is to those who have never heard the name of Christ. And I praise God for the avenues already this year that he's opened up for us to do that and look forward to sharing with that with you soon. But the reality is, friends, we don't actually have to go to another country, although God might be calling some of us to do that. We don't have to go to another country. We can just go to the people next door. We can go to the people in our workplaces or in our schools. There are lost people all around us. Men and women who right now are facing the judgment of God. And God wants them to know his mercy and love. And so I don't know about you, but I want to be part of God's call of compassion to people. I want to make God's message of salvation known. And I want to believe that God can bring revival. Friends, don't you want to see a revival happen amongst your friends, amongst your family, here in our city? Don't we want to see God, just God move? I praise God for how he's already done that in many ways through our church. If we, I just went, took some time this week and I counted up all our past and current members and 60%, a little actually over 60% of people who have called Christ Church home at one point have come to faith through the gospel ministry of our church. They were not Christians and they became Christians through coming through his doors. We praise God for his work for that. The Lord has done great and mighty things. But let's be clear, seeing what God has done should give us a hunger for what God can do. Don't you want to see God move? I want to see God move. Listen, friends, if you want to see God move, we need to understand he moves through moving in us. 
He moves through us listening to his call to arise and go. And I know so often it can be so hard to think about that. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to speak. I don't know what to say. I feel so unprepared. Well, let me encourage you, friend, you are. You're an unlikely messenger, just as unlikely as Jonah was. Our confidence to go and be used by God does not come from us feeling prepared and like we've got it all on lock. No, it should come from us knowing how unlikely we are because the more we are aware of how unlikely we are, the more we're aware of our story that we should have been those who are lost but we've been rescued by the merciful hand of God. The more we're amazed that God can be merciful to us, the more we will be filled with confidence that if he can save me, he can save anyone, so I'm going to tell everyone about him. When we doubt what God can do, we're forgetting our own story. We're all unlikely messengers, friends. This is not where we deserve to be. The message of grace is not the story that we should be able to tell, but it is by God's goodness to us. And so confidence to be part of God's mission to reach people with his gospel does not come from an inner confidence in ourselves and our qualifications, but an awareness of how unlikely our salvation is and how great God's mercy to us has been. Jonah's an unlikely messenger. We're unlikely messengers, and yet God loves to use the unlikely. Jonah's an unlikely messenger who was given an uncomfortable message. Let's look at the uncomfortable message. God tells Jonah to go and speak the message that he gives him, and look what the message is in verse 4. Jonah went to the city, and going a day's journey, called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the Hebrew language, this message is actually only five words. Five words. It takes me anywhere from 12 to 20 hours to prepare a sermon. Um, Jonah had five words. It's like, God, how come, like, I want that kind of big. You know, like, uh, Jonah has five words. The message is short, but it's also pretty harsh. Forty days and you're going to burn. Like, this isn't even a turn or burn message. This is like, just burn. You know, that's it. Judgment is coming. But Jonah knows that baked into the reality of God's compassion Baked into the reality of God's judgment is this actually expression of compassion because that number 40 is not a throwaway number. And Jonah would have known that. When God flooded the earth but spared Noah, Noah the rains went on for how long? 40 days. Genesis chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 24 verse 18, God tells that Moses, who freed uh, the Israelite people from the slavery to Egypt, he went from Mount Sinai and he met with God for how long? 40 days. People wandered in the desert for how long? 40 years. Richard Phillips helps us understand what's happening here when he says the number 40 is often used in Scripture for times of preparation or warning. So what's happening here is that Jonah knew that the number 40 was a sign from God that he was giving the Ninevite people a warning so that they could prepare themselves to turn from their evil ways and receive grace. Jonah would have known that. He, he knew that this was not just a harsh message. This was actually a very compassionate call. But what's interesting is the Ninevite people would not have known that. It's not like they're like well-versed in Israel's history or their sacred scriptures. They just heard judgment. And yet still, through that short and hard message, the miracle of revival breaks out. We're going to look at that more in a moment. But, but here's what we need to see what's happening here. Jonah's not giving some kind of impressive presentation. Like, he's not getting any style points for this message. What we're seeing here, friends, is it's the, not the power of our presentation that changes people's hearts. It's the power of the message that God's given us to speak. 
It's not the power of our presentation that changes people's hearts. It's the power of the message that God's given us to speak. And let's be clear, friends, we've been given an even better message than Jonah. His message was the only message of bad news. On this side of the cross of Jesus, we've been given a message of bad news, yes, but also of good news. Here's our message. We don't have to guess what it is. The whole, the whole point of what's supposed to be most important to us is made very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. The Bible literally tells us what's, what our message is and what's most important. For I deliver to you as a first importance. We don't have to guess. Here's what's a first importance. We also receive that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Friends, our primary message, what is of first importance, is that Christ died for our sins. Now, let's be clear. This is partly a message of judgment. This is telling us that sin requires death. It's not for Jesus' sins that he died. It's for our sins. Our sins require death, which is not just a physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. As we live without thought or awareness of God, just doing our own thing, what we deserve from God is for him to allow us to do that forever. To be separate from him. Fine. You want to live life your own way? You can do that for all eternity. But that's not life. That's death. For God is what is good, and God is what is beautiful, and God is what is life. And so to be separate from him is to be, by definition, dead. This world, as messed up as it is, still has goodness and beauty in it. Why? Because God is still present in it. But remove God from it, and all you're left with is the worst parts of humanity. Imagine that stretching on for all eternity. That's death. And that's the judgment that we deserve. But the good news of Jesus is that there's not only bad news, there's not only judgment, there is salvation. The Ninevites did not know they could be saved. They hoped they could. They said, who knows? Maybe God will relent. Well, who knows? We know that God does relent. Who knows? We know because what the Ninevites hoped for, we have seen embodied. Because Jesus came and Christ has died for our sins. Jesus came and he did take what we deserve so that we could experience the forgiveness that he has earned. And this is our message. This is our message, friends. Christ died for our sins. This is our message, and we can stutter and stammer our way through it. And friends, here's the good news. God can still work because it's not the persuasiveness of the messenger that changes anyone, but the power of God that's present in the message that he is bringing. Now, I'm all about trying to get better at, you know, sharing the faith. I just taught a class on that this past summer, right? Like, that's a good thing to do, but friends, we do not place our confidence in our abilities whatsoever. If Jonah's message can change people's hearts, friends, we should feel a lot of freedom that God working in people's lives certainly is not up to us in our speaking abilities. And if you don't believe that, you're like, you're still like, no, no, I think there's just the reason people haven't responded. I haven't just figured out the right thing to say yet. If you don't believe that, then here's what I want you to do. Go to a cemetery and try to share the gospel with a corpse and raise them to life. Take all the evangelistic classes you want and go try to do that. You think it's going to help you much? Do you think you'll be able to find the right words to raise the dead? Of course not. Our words can't do that. Well, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You've never met a person in your life who's alive. We're all walking corpses spiritually, dead in our hearts towards God. The only reason any of us come to life is because God can raise the dead. It's not our words, friends. It is his 
resurrecting power. That he uses our words. We faithfully need to share his message. But friends, it's not up to our abilities. We don't raise the dead. We deliver the message of God and the power of God and the message is what raises the dead. We need to be very clear on that, which I think is actually meant to give us a lot of freedom. That you know what? I might stutter and stammer my way through it. I get so locked up, I don't even know what to say. Friends, just share like Christ died for our sins. I tell my kids, it's the five-finger gospel. Christ died for our sins. That's it. This is what we share. And again, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't try to get better at it. You know, I'm not trying. Some of you actually, like, I know, make your living, like, training people to evangelists. I'm not trying to talk you out of a job. Like, 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 that's fine. That's good to do. We should try to get better at, at, at teaching and training how to, how to teach us to share our faith. But at the end of the day, friends, that is not our confidence. Our confidence is not in our persuasive abilities, our confidence is in the power of the message we've given. This is meant to give us a lot of freedom, and this is also meant to give us a certain amount of limitation. It's meant to give us freedom, but it's also meant to give us a limitation because since the power is in God's message, you know what that means? That means that we can't change the message. It's not our message. It's God's message. We're not authors with a creative license to change the message. We're all, we are mailmen who have been given a message that we're not allowed to tamper with. We just need to faithfully deliver it to where God sends us. This can be hard because we live in a culture, especially right now, where there's a lot of pressure for us just to affirm everyone. The idea of talking about sin and right and wrong, and wrongdoing, uh, that's a very taboo idea. You know, now you're judging someone. Now you're bigoted. Now you're saying you're self-right. Like all these things that then just get put upon us that we never actually did or said any of that. But immediately, as soon as you start actually talking about the idea that there's right and wrong, some people just start to get really jumpy when you say those things. Talking about the concept of God's judgment, now all of a sudden you're being labeled as judgmental. And so it can be tempting to want to change the message. Talk about other stuff. Let's just talk about how God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But friends, that's not our message. That's not what God says is of first importance. It's not our message. And we should not and cannot change the message. We should not and cannot change the message. And friends, nor should we want to because God's power is in the message. So if you change it, maybe people will come to believe in what you're saying, but they're not coming to believe in the gospel. And so you're actually doing them no good. They might come to believe in something, but it will not be the good news of Jesus. And so we need to understand that we have been given an uncomfortable message. No one ever came to believe in the good news without first being convicted by the bad news. No one ever experienced the miracle of salvation without first understanding they needed to be saved. And so here's why I think we should take away from this. Don't be scared to say uncomfortable things, friends. Don't be scared to say uncomfortable things. Oh man, I might offend someone. Well, you follow a savior who offended people so much they killed him. If you're not offending people, you're not being like Jesus. Now listen, I'm not saying that you should be unkind. I'm not saying you should be offensive. Don't be a jerk and try to talk about Jesus. Right? That's not what this is saying. The offensiveness does not come from us being offensive. It comes from the reality that, like, yeah, we all deserve to be judged, and some people don't want to hear that. We should not share that unkindly. We should share that humbly as those who recognize, like, yeah, I was under the same sentence just as you. 
We are one sinner talking to another sinner about how we can have salvation. We're not one person who's better talking to another person who's worse, telling them how they can be like us. Let's be very clear about that. And so we don't speak unkindly, but we can't shy away from speaking uncomfortably. God works in that uncomfort. He actually works through people's souls being troubled. You know, one of the things the New Testament was commonly said, and even actually see it here in Jonah, it says that people were cut to the heart. They felt troubled by something. And it was the trouble they felt that actually led them to experience God. And so friends, don't be scared of making things uncomfortable. Don't do it unkindly, but don't be unfaithful. There's a God and there's a day of judgment. And if we don't place our faith in Jesus, we'll all experience that judgment because the only way to be saved is through him. And so I want to be very clear to anyone who's listening online, and we have a couple people who like listen like regularly, and even people here in this church who are uh, present right with us now who have yet to believe in Jesus. I'm so grateful you're here. I hope by this point, like you listen to me more than like once or twice, you know that like I love you and I'm so grateful for you. But I want to be very clear that what the Bible is saying is turn to God because there's a day of judgment coming. And I know that's like real uncomfortable for me to say. My plan is like, my, my point is like, you've done wrongs in your life, what's your plan? You really think God's going to turn a blind eye to it? Is that your hope? Friends, there's a better hope. The hope is Jesus. You deserve death. And Christ took what you deserve. And so the opportunity that we all have is to turn to him and experience life. And I pray you have yet to do that, that today be the day that you do. We can't shy away, shy away from being uncomfortable. We've been given an uncomfortable message, friends. We are unlikely messengers and trusted with an uncomfortable message. But friends, through that, God can work unimaginable miracles. Let's turn to our final point this morning, the unimaginable miracle. I think what we see here in chapter 3 is by far the wildest thing that we see in the entire book. Like, people make a big deal about the fish, and like, oh man, could someone get swallowed by a fish and live? And I get that, that's pretty crazy, but I'm like, I live in a city. I can't imagine a whole city turning to God. <laughs> like, you want to talk about wild? That's what it says. They all turn to God. Like, there's a revival that breaks out in this city that we heard in, in, in chapter 1. Like, don't, don't forget, we read that letter from, like, the king. This city, their walls were literally made out of corpses. Like, we're worried about, oh, man, Philadelphia, things are getting really bad here. Okay, I'm pretty sure City Hall is not, like, there's not dead people in those, well, you never know, I guess. But, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is an evil city. And revival breaks out. This is an unimaginable miracle, friends, and yet God can do unimaginable things. These people hear the message of Jonah, and they don't kill him. They don't even get angry at him. They're cut to the heart. They're convicted by their sin. They don't make excuses for it. They don't say, well, you know, this happened to me growing up, or that happened, or this is taking place. No, no, no. They are cut to the heart for their wrongdoing, and they put on sackcloth to show it. Sackcloth was a rough cloth that people in ancient times would wear when they were in distress. It was a kind of an outward expression of an inner turmoil, like just as hard and as it is to sit in these things, so hard have I made life for myself by the wrongs I've done. It's a way to publicly say, like, yeah, I messed up big time. That's what you do when you're wearing sackcloth. It was an outward expression of their inner turmoil. And what's interesting is that even the king gets in on this. See that in verse 6, like the whole city returns, and then even the king, word gets up to him, and what does he do? He arises from his throne. 
He gets off his throne, steps down, takes off his royal robes, and puts on the sackcloth as well. The king humbles himself. He humbles himself saying, I'm not going to even sit on a throne anymore because the reality is I've been presiding over an evil nation. I need to humble myself before the God who is truly king. He saw his wrong, and then he takes action. He actually orders a fast. Fasting means refraining from eating in order to cry out to God in a particularly strong way. As we ache, feel that ache of hunger, it's meant to give us an aching for God to move. And so the king orders a fast, and it's interesting, he even orders that the animals need to fast. Um, and he puts sackcloth on them. It's like, what's up with that? Like, why, like, why are we including the animals in, you know, in this John? But, but what's going on is we got to keep in mind back then that, that agriculture was their primary form of currency. Right? They, they, they did not operate on the dollar system. Uh, there was some gold, but actually most people didn't really have much gold. And so the regular form of currency was your herds. It was your sheep. It was your goats and your cows. And so the king orders that the signs of repentance include even them. Why? Well, what happens if you don't feed and water your animals? They get weak, and some will even die. So think about what's happening here. What's happening here is the Ninevites are showing that they're going to turn to God no matter the cost. They're going to turn to God even if it makes life harder for them. They aren't holding anything back. They're crying out to God even at the cost of their wallet. They're saying we're willing to do whatever it takes to turn from our sin. In other words, they're not just sad about what they did. They take decisive action to change how they live. Not just sad about what they did. They're taking decisive action to change how they live. And this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us is the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. See the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Both feel sorrow. Both are feeling grief. But godly grief produces movement in our lives. It leads us to repent. Repent means to turn away from that which is evil and turn to God who is good. And so the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is that both feel sad, but godly sorrow is saying, I'm going to take this emotion I'm feeling and apply it to change in my life. I'm not going to sit in my stink and just wallow in my sorrow. I'm going to believe that God has mercy for sinners. I'm going to turn to him and change. See, worldly sorrow feels bad in a moment. But then eventually you actually gets over it and there's no difference in your life. Like everyone feels bad when they start experiencing consequences for the wrong thing they did. Then you remove those consequences and all of a sudden you don't feel so bad anymore. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow just feels bad about what's happening in the moment. Godly sorrow feels bad about what this does towards God. And because of what we're aware of what it does towards God, whether there's consequences or no consequences, we want to turn from it and we want to turn to him. Godly sorrow produces repentance in our lives. And so friends, maybe there's something that you need to turn from today. I want to be very clear. That change is not going to come from you just feeling sad about your sin. It's going to come from you taking decisive action to turn from it and to turn to God. Genuine godly sorrow always leads to true steps of repentance, to turning to the Lord. And here's the beautiful thing. When we turn to God in repentance, he never turns us away. When we turn to God in repentance, he never turns us away. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he 
did not do it. God never turns away anyone who is willing to turn to him. God never says it's too late. Like that's not in his vocabulary on this side of eternity. And so God sees the Ninevites turning to him and he, God himself then turns away from the judgment that he said he would bring upon them. Now let's be clear. This is not God like changing his mind. God is unchanging. If they hadn't turned, God is unchanging and so he would have judged them. But since they did turn, God is unchanging and so God never judges those who are repenting. I think that Hugh Martin says it, it's a commentary, says it really well this way. It was wicked, violent, unrighteous, atheistical, proud, and luxurious Nineveh, which God threatened to destroy. A city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement, and appealing as lowly supplements to his commiseration. A Nineveh like that, that Nineveh, he had never threatened. That Nineveh, he had not visited with ruin. He never said he would. See, it's, it's not that God changed. Nineveh changed. And because God is who he always is, because God is unchanging in his mercy towards those who repent, he never turns away anyone who's willing to turn to him. Richard Phillips, in his excellent commentary on Jonah, I think says it really helpfully this way, it is precisely because God is unchanging that we are encouraged to repent. God is unfailing in both his wrath against sin and his mercy towards faithful repentance. There's no variation in his opposition to wickedness. Thus we are called to repent of our sin. And there's no variation in his delight in receiving sinners who call on the name of the Lord and lay hold of his mercy through faith in his word. Friends, what we should see here, what, what this should, should encourage us with is that God is unchanging in his heart towards us. And so if we turn to him, he will never cast you out. Friends, if you turn to him, God will never cast you out. He'll never turn you away. He'll never not forgive. He'll always welcome you. He's the unchangeable God. That's who he is. And so in him, there's always mercy. He'll never stop being merciful because he can never stop being himself. There's always mercy for those who are willing to turn to him in repentance. Now, I've been a pastor for about 10 years now, and something I hear fairly regularly is like, okay, I get that God forgives me. Challenge is I'm just having a hard time forgiving myself. I think that actually comes from a shallow understanding of God's forgiveness. People sometimes, we can think that God forgives means that he just turns a blind eye to our sin. And so even though you know God forgives, you still feel like his forgiveness in some ways is actually unjust because you know your sin is still there. He's just choosing not to look at it. And it's hard to forgive ourselves when we still feel like our wrongs need to be paid for. And so we just wallow in shame and guilt and try to pay for them ourselves. But here's what we need to understand, friends. When verse 10 says that God relented from the disaster, the Hebrew word there for relent is a word that denotes inward suffering. In other words, God's relenting cost God. Theologian Joanne Hoyt helps us understand this within her words that she wrote in the commentary of Jonah. This is what that Hebrew word's getting at. It says that God suffered, God suffered, and was moved to pity. God suffered to relent. The idea here is that God was moved to pity even at a cost that he himself suffered 
And on this side of the cross, we know what that suffering of God was. We know what it would cost him to relent from the judgment that we deserve. Turn a blind eye to our sin? No, that's not what it means at all for God to forgive us. Your wrongs and my wrongs, they deserve death. And that can't just be glossed over. Justice does require blood for sin. God's forgiveness comes not because he's turned a blind eye, but because there is blood that has been given. It is the blood of Jesus. God forgives our sins, not by just not choosing to look at them, but because he paid for them all himself on the cross. And because of what Jesus has done, friends, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. Because there's no sin that cannot be forgiven, there's no sin that cannot be repented of. There's no sin that we go through in life through which God won't forgive us and through which the power of Christ in us can empower us to turn away from and to turn to him in righteousness. Because of what Jesus can done, has done, because God is willing to turn to those who are willing to turn to him, friends, in that turning there is miracles, there is mercy, there is breaking of sin strongholds, there is true repentance that can come as we, as we come out of the darkness and into the light of obeying him and living for him. God can do miracles in us. And he can do miracles through us. As we share about Jesus, the Savior of sinners, and God can still save. And he does still save. So as we come to a close, I think there are kind of two things we need to consider. First, is there a revival that needs to start in you before it can start through you? In order for Jonah to be a tool in God's hand, he first had to repent of his own sin. You have to start listening to God in order to be used by God. Is there a revival that needs to start in you before it can start through you? Maybe there's an area of your life that you just can't imagine ever being different. You just can't imagine coming clean and confessing that. You can't imagine that God could possibly forgive you, and you certainly can't imagine changing. It's not by chance that you are listening to this today. Today is an opportunity to have your faith stirred that God can do unimaginable things. Now, it's not going to happen to you being passive. God just zapped me. No, Jonah had to get up off his butt and go to Nineveh. Right? The, the Ninevites took action. They confessed their sin. They even got their animals involved and experienced the cost. And so maybe there's action you need to take. Maybe you haven't passive. You're just waiting passively for God to change you. God's changed you by you taking choices to make changes. God changes you through you making choices to make changes. And so, maybe there's an action that you need to take. Maybe, maybe you need to confess your sin to someone. You'd be like that king. Just take, get off the throne of your pride and humble yourself and be open about how something's been going on in your life that you haven't told anyone about. You just need to come clean about it. Maybe you need to confess your sin today. Maybe you need to pay a cost. You need to get rid of that, self, that, that smartphone that just keeps tempting you. You've tried all the accountability software in the world. You just need to get rid of it. It'll be Okay. People live without them for 2,000 years. You'll be all right, I promise. But it'll come as a cost. Was there a cost you're not willing to pay to follow Christ? Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you stop going to that place. Maybe you need to stop being around those people. Maybe you need to 
Maybe you need to change some of your friends. Just too, just too hard, too, too tempting for what they put in front of you. But I don't know what it is, but the point is that God can work miracles in us, friends. We are not powerless over our sin. That's a lie from Satan. We can turn from our sins, and we can turn to Christ, and he never turns away anyone who turns to him for his mercy. That's the first question. Is there a revival that needs to start in us before it starts through us? Here's the second question. How can you join God and be part of someone else's story of salvation? How can you join God? It's his work. It's what he's doing. But he does his work through working us and through working through us. And so how can you join God and being part of someone else's story? God's the one who does the miracle, but he does the miracle through unlikely messengers speaking an uncomfortable message. Are you willing to step out in faith? Willing to step out in faith. Who in your life right now can you share the goodness of Jesus with tomorrow? God, God, God starts, friends, small. Just one person's choice, Jonah's choice to go to Nineveh. But small steps of faithfulness that lead to massive moves of God. And small steps of faithfulness, like, we don't know actually how long it was in between Jonah chapter 2 and Jonah chapter 3. Um, and so I don't know how long it's going to take for you to be sharing the gospel. You've been doing it for so long with this person for so long or whatever. And you just haven't seen much fruit. I don't know how long these things take, but God knows. We're not called to know the time frame. We're called just to be willing to speak. I love Richard Phillips who ends his commentary on this chapter by writing this. The great need of our world today is a legion of Jonas. Fresh with the awareness of God's grace in their own lives, who call out to the world with the same message of grace. God will and must judge the wickedness of our world. God will and must visit your sins with the fire of his wrath. Yet he has sent his own son into this world to bear the sins of those who believe. This is the message the Christian pulpits must preach and the witness the Christian lives must present. In this respect, the ministry of Jonah stands as a perpetual encouragement to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Oh, friends, may it be an encouragement to us. May it be an encouragement to us, Christ Church, that we would arise and go, unlikely messengers as we are, that we would arise and go with an uncomfortable message that we haven't been given, but that we would arise and go and believe that God can work unimaginable things for his glory. God's been doing great stuff, friends, but I always believe because of the kind of God he is, the best is still to come. And I pray that we would join him in what God wants to do in this city and around the world to make his message of salvation known. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.